Set in there? Ready in here. We ready here? Tape rolling. Rolling. All right, everyone stand by. Go ahead, Charlene. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying? the most horrible way to die. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. following program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. Try anything you cancel, bro. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 All right, kids, let's do this. From the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you back to what lurks what behind lurks podcast zero and i am your host post-mortem paul and you might be thinking geez he started this episode without an opening rant oh no the rant is coming now <laughs> because this week i have two movies i need to talk about in the first one well i might make some enemies hopefully not but you never know because Netflix. So, February 18th, we got a new movie. New movie to a franchise that has been around since 1974. And it's considered one of the classics. But the thing is, is that this new movie, this new entry into the franchise, well, I have a feeling it's going to divide some fans. And I've seen a lot of positive, I've seen a lot of negative... Where I stand on that, well, that's going to be coming now. Now, the franchise I'm talking about is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. On Netflix, they released what's supposed to be a direct sequel to the original film from 1974. The one that was directed by Toby Hooper. And, okay, so when I saw the trailer, I knew there was a possibility... I wasn't going to like this movie. Now, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise is one that I'm very hit or miss with to begin with. Um, hmm. Like, the thing is, is, like, I'm more partial to the first few films than I am the more recent ones. But this one being it was a direct sequel to the original, I was like, all right, well, you know what? Give it a chance and let's see what I think of it. I broke this down into three portions. I broke it down into the pros of the film, the cons of the film, and then overall. 
Starting with the pros, and I'm also going to preface this by saying that I'm going to try my hardest not to spoil anything other than what, what was in the trailers. So the pros for the film, the things that I liked about it. Well, okay, so first off, I'm going to start with the music score. Music score by Colin Stetson is great. It is phenomenal. It is a really good score. He uh, did the score for The Color Out of Space, which I absolutely loved. thought it was a great score. And with this, I, I'm totally on board with it. I really like the music that came from this movie. Um, I can understand why Waxwork Records is really pushing that they are releasing a vinyl for it because it is a really good score. Uh, I mean... The original film really didn't have much of a score to begin with. It did, but not. it didn't really stand out, right? I mean, the, the first film, what, what stood out was the fact that it had like this gritty, dirty, grindhouse feel to it. It was more the visuals and the overall story that stood out. With this one, however, I found that the music score really complemented the film, despite the fact that maybe the film wasn't exactly what I wanted. I will also say that the blood and the gore in this one is very plentiful, and it's actually quite decent looking. It's it's primarily practical effects, if not the whole thing being practical effects, and it's really it does a good job with it. Like there's some there's some pretty good kills. I'm not gonna lie, um, and that was the thing. Like you know, going into this, I. I knew it was going to be more bloodier and gorier than the original. Now, the original did that whole less is more thing. And I really wish movies would go back to that. I really wish we'd stop, you know, putting so much in everyone's face. Like, just let let the audience's imagination make it worse than it is. You know what I mean? Because that first film really did that well. Where with this one, yeah, Leatherface goes on a tear, and we see it. And I have to say, as much as it doesn't really follow along with the original, it stood out, it was glorious, and it was a lot of fun to watch. The other thing I might add is that Alice Krieg makes an appearance. Um, she has a small little role in the film. It's kind of nice to see her still doing some horror movies and still, you know, making her presence known. Her character, I feel might not be that great but it was nice to see her acting again and doing you know this texas chainsaw massacre film so with that said like i say the, the pros of this film definitely the music score the practical effects and then alice krieg making an appearance i'm totally on board with this and i will also say that mark burnham who plays leatherface he doesn't do a horrible job granted i think the screenplay might be what hurts him a little, but his overall portrayal, he does a good job. Now with the cons, because there's a lot of them. And basically, it's everything else with this film that really drove me nuts. The story is ridiculous. It's just, it's not a good story. It's very cringe-inducing, very unbelievable. Like, the whole idea that you know, these kids are, they go to this ghost town and they're supposed to be trying to make a new community out of it and whatnot. And they want to make it more safe and more, you know, they want to have like this, this small town community feel and whatnot just doesn't seem to work. And maybe that's because the movie wasn't filmed in Texas either, but really honestly, 
if you're not from that area, you might not really notice that it's not filmed in Texas. But it was just, it didn't work. And then the characters, the characters, other than Leatherface himself, they're utterly abysmal. Honestly, they really don't work for me at all. There's there's nothing that connects me to these characters whatsoever. And you might say, well, yeah, the original didn't have the greatest characters either. No, it really didn't. But for whatever reason, it just sort of worked. <laughs> I guess they were more memorable. Where with this this film, they're not memorable. Like, I, I, I don't even remember half their names. I, I know that the one character's name is Lily. And I believe, if I remember correctly, she's the character who, you know, she she was a victim of a school shooting. And now her sister's trying to bring her to this new community so she can feel safe again and not have her, you know, her post-traumatic syndrome basically driving her batshit nuts all the time and stuff. It just, I don't know, the characters just didn't work. I mean, no one in the film is even remotely likable. A lot of these characters are very cheesy and they just don't work. They're there more or less for Leatherface to have someone to chase and kill. Uh, then we have the idea that Sally Hardesty is returning in this, you know, and the whole I'm not trying to be Laurie Strode, even though she basically is Laurie Strode from these new Halloween films. I mean, waited 50 years for Leatherface to return. She's supposed to be some like sheriff or some like cop of the of the town or whatever. And it took her 50 years to figure out where Leatherface was, even though it should have been completely obvious to her who Leatherface was, but the whole, Oh, well, Leatherface was wearing a mask. So do you know how hard it is to find Leatherface? Blah, blah, blah. It just doesn't seem to work for me. Like I just, I found myself more being frustrated with this film than I was enjoying it. And then even at that, Again, this is supposed to be a direct sequel to the original. There's almost nothing tying it to the original other than the aforementioned Sally Hardesty plot, which even at that is barely a connecting point at that. Like it really, it, you, you almost wonder like, okay, Sally Hardesty escaped from Leatherface and it sent her on this, uh, this path that she was going to hunt him down for 50 years. And again, like I said, like her character almost seems dumb. Like, how could you not figure out who Leatherface was? Then also, and I'm going to try and do this without spoiling, but there's somewhat of a social commentary within this movie. It, it's sort of, you know, supposed to point out how everyone is addicted to social media and everyone wants to have this whole inclusive environment and whatnot. And the social commentary that the movie is trying to push really almost worsens the film more than it does help. It really doesn't... That's the thing, like, and I know I'm probably coming off as sounding very negative. I understand this is just supposed to be another slasher flick, and, you know, like, I mean, the slasher flicks are what we give the, the, the killer a bunch of victims to play with. And I understand that's what this movie's trying to do, but it just seems like, first off, it takes a while to get to Leatherface being Leatherface, and then once he is, he's just... He's on this tear. He wants to avenge um, Alice Krieg's character, who I, I won't say what happens to her, but basically she's connected to him, and he feels that now he has to avenge what she's been put through. And this, it's just, oh, it's. I found this movie felt like it was a mess. Um, 
my overall feelings on it basically are watch at your own discretion, but keep a very low expectation level. Um, I find that sometimes, you know, lower expectations leads to less disappointment. The thing is, is you just, I, 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 for me personally, I walked away from this still feeling quite disappointed. I mean, if you like some good horror kills and you want some blood and gore and whatnot, some blood and guts, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there's a lot of that and it's pretty decent practical effects again, but it's a bit far-fetched and you know, I, I get that, that that's slashers too. Slashers are always a bit far-fetched. It, everything from Halloween to Friday the 13th and Pieces and all those, they're all far-fetched films. Obviously, I get that. But I just found that even though the blood was spattering away, it just seemed too much over the top for me. My advice, in it, from me personally, stick with the original trilogy, uh, and that being Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, uh, part two that came out in 1986, and then there was Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 from 1990. Those are all great films. They're a lot of fun. And the 2003 remake is really good too. But everything else in this whole Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise for me has just been a complete waste. I have really not liked a lot of these films. So do keep that in mind when I'm talking about this, that I this is not meant for me. Um... But like I said, I did. I have seen a lot of positive too, though. Like, there's a lot of people that walked away from this movie having fun with it. And you know what? Maybe that's maybe it's just me being too critical, you know. But again, Texas or TCM, we'll call it TCM, so I don't keep saying Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the whole TCM franchise just has not really been one for me. Uh, it was actually funny. I was I was having a discussion with a friend this morning. We were talking about um, horror films in general and whatnot, and he was saying that he hadn't seen the new film and whatnot. But one thing that he looks for in horror films is like lore and mythology. And, you know, we were talking about like Clive Barker in the Hellraiser series or Nightbreed and Midian, uh, the whole backstory of Midian, which is something that could totally be explored if they ever chose to go back to that world. Um, you know, Lovecraft, Lovecraftian horror, there's all this mythology and lore to it and the idea of, you know, the Deep Ones and Cthulhu and and Dagon and all that. It's, sometimes that is like the greatest horror to watch because there's so much that you can build around it. I find with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's very one-dimensional. It's, it's Leatherface, it's a bunch of cannibals, and it's just... And that's the other thing, too. For being a direct sequel to the original, there is no mention of the cook. There's no mention of uh, Leatherface's brother or his family or anything. Like, his family is basically Alice Krieg, who runs an, uh, an orphanage, and she adopted him. Which, that's also something. This is supposed to take place 50 years later. How young did they think Leatherface was when he was doing his killings in 1973, when in this film, he surely doesn't look like he's 70 years old. He had to have been at least 20 in the first film, which would make him 70. And he doesn't look 70 in this. So, again, it's it's one of those things. you got to take it with a grain of salt. You have to, you have to kind of approach it where you just shut your brain off and just watch it and either enjoy it for what it is. Or in my case, it just didn't work. And that's all I really can say about it without spoiling 
anything else. Um, but I will say, like, definitely, if, if you want to see some blood and gore and just have some fun with it, give it a shot. But understand that this is uh, this is a franchise that it's really hard to build on, to be quite honest, unless they totally change the whole dynamic of it. And I just don't see that happening anytime soon. Now, with all that said, it's time to move on to our featured film of the week, which is a classic from 1984. It's a film that critics hated, but fans love. And that's the thing, too. Even some of the critics of this film are people who were directly responsible for it happening. And I'll get more on that. I'll get into that more when I I do the review. But first, we're going to do the trailer. So trailer timeout, and then when we return, we'll come back to this film that was directed by Mark Lester and starred a very young Drew Barrymore. Yes, I'm talking about Firestarter. Firestarter is our episode 118 featured movie review of the week. Um, There's a lot of trivia to this film. There's a lot that is worth talking about. And I I chose chose to do Firestarter because... We're getting a new film this year. Uh, later in 2022, we will be getting a new Firestarter film. It's a remake of the original. And you have to ask yourself, is this the time for it? You know, And did this film need a remake? There's a lot of people that actually think it did. So anyways, trailer time out. And when we return, we will uh, go back to the world of 1984. And we will talk about Firestarter. Back in a splat, kids. Charlie McGee is a healthy eight-year-old girl. Normal in every way. Charlie, now watch what you're doing. But one. Did she do that? What are you going to do with her? Probably well, you're here. So you can do all your tests. And you give her to me. Charlie has the power. Do something bad. But you still love me. Oh, Charlie. She can set things on fire. Something's happening in there. With just a glance. It is a power she does not want. Stick with him. Daddy, I'm scared. So am I, honey. A power she cannot control. Back off. And each night, she prays to be just like every other child. We haven't got her yet. We will. But there are those who will do everything in their power to find her. To control her. Charlie! And maybe destroy her. Charlie! Come to me, Charlie. Go! You would have to burn it down. I mean, burn it all down. Charlie McGee is Stephen King's fire starter. Will she have the power to survive? Okay, so before we get into this week's review of uh, Firestarter, there is something I think I should uh, inform all of you, (laughs) because uh, you ever have one of those days where it seems like everything that can go wrong does go wrong? Well, yeah, before I started recording this today, uh, my mic stand kind of broke. So I am doing everything that I can to try and minimize background noise and whatnot, but unfortunately I have to hold my microphone today uh, until I can get a replacement microphone stand. So I'm trying to keep this as noise-free as possible, but I can't promise that occasionally you might hear the odd clink or whatnot. 
unfortunately, you know, shit happens, but the show must go on. So, with that being said, Firestarter. Yes, Firestarter, uh, we are getting a remake this year. I believe May 2022 is the targeted uh, release time frame, if I remember correctly. Anyways, the original from 1984 premiered May 9th, 1984 in Bangor, Maine. It had a, a, a very limited release, but then two days later, uh, North American wide release, uh, uh, May 11th, 1984 was when basically the rest of North America saw it. It had release dates after that. I believe the UK was like a month later. Uh, Ireland was in August, I believe. There was a lot of release dates, but in terms of the North American release, it was May 11th, 1984. So it was a film that was directed by Mark L. Lester. Now, the interesting thing about this is that originally John Carpenter was slated to direct Firestarter. Um, the producers had gone to him and they wanted him to uh, do Firestarter. But at the time, and keep in mind this was a few years before its actual release, well, the thing had just been released in the theaters and was considered a theatrical failure. As we all know with the thing, when it came out, it was panned by critics, it was panned by audiences, but as the years have gone on, it's become a cult hit and is now considered one of the all-time greats. At that time, though, it was considered a failure, so he was removed from the project and Mark was brought in to direct. Mark has worked on other projects such as like Class of 1984. Uh, after doing Firestarter, uh, the producers for Commando were totally pulled in by how he did the film so he got the job of commando uh due in part thanks to how he directed firestarter i uh, also did films like armed and dangerous uh, class of 1989 showdown in little tokyo and double take now in 1980, uh, 1993 sorry uh, mark started up american world pictures which a lot of the it's a motion picture production company whatnot um a lot of their flicks are very low budget, very under the radar, but they were responsible for giving us the low budget classic Satan's Little Helper, which if you've ever seen that is a fucking joy. Um, so anyways, I thought it was worth mentioning. The film Firestarter was produced by Frank Capra Jr. and Dino De Laurentiis. Now, Frank, if the name sounds familiar, he's the son of the renowned Frank Capra, who gave us It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and Frank Capra Jr. also produced films such as three of the Planet of the Apes films. He did Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and Battle of the Planet of the Apes. He also did the movie Vice Squad from 1982, and he did a film known as Death Before Dishonor. Uh, Frank Capra Jr. passed away in December of 2007, though. Now, as for Dino... Well, Dino De Laurentiis, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that name, especially if you know 80s films and whatnot. He's a Class A producer, and he went on to create DEG Entertainment uh, with his wife, Martha. And they pr produced um, something like, uh, what was it, 198 movies or something like that before he uh, passed away in 2010. Some of those films included... Uh, Movies like Goliath and the Vampires, Barbarella, Death Wish, King Kong from 1976. He did Flash Gordon from 1980. Uh, he was uncredited on Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, though. 
Um, also, I believe he was un no, he was not uncredited for the Dead Zone. He did the Dead Zone. He also did Cat's Eye, uh, Silver Bullet, which was another Stephen King film. He did Raw Deal, which was an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Uh, Maximum Overdrive, King Kong Lives, Army of Darkness. We all know that one. Uh, Body of Evidence with Madonna. He did Hannibal. He did Red Dragon. That's just naming a few. Like I said, something like 198 or 196 films or something like that he did. Uh, But I did say he did pass away in 2010. Now, the screenplay for Firestarter was written by Stanley Mann, based off the novel Firestarter by Stephen King. Uh, Stanley was Canadian. He was born in Toronto in 1928 and was a writer first and foremost. But he also did produce a few films and he acted in two films, one of which is Firestarter. Um, He played the motel owner in Firestarter. Uh, But Stanley primarily was known for his writing abilities. Um, He worked on Firestarter. He also did screenplays for films like Skyriders, Omen 2, uh, Damien, or Damien Omen 2. Uh, he finished out his career with Firestarter, Conan the Destroyer, uh, Taipan, and Hannah's War. Stanley passed away in 2016 at the age of 87. Here's a did you know little fact though. Burt Lancaster's son Bill was originally tapped to write the screenplay for, um, well, at the time, it was to be John Carpenter's Firestarter. When John Carpenter was asked to do Firestarter, he brought in Bill. Uh, because he and Bill had worked together on The Thing. Again, like I said, because The Thing was considered a theatrical failure, both of them were let go, and in came Mark Lester and Stanley Mann. The cinematography for Firestarter was done by Giuseppe Rusellini. Uh, He was an Italian cameraman who worked on a mixture of Italian and U.S. projects. One of them that sort of stood out was the X-rated 1974 adaptation of Arabian Nights. But uh, again, he did a lot of Italian work and it was a lot of titles I couldn't pronounce. I did feel it was necessary to also highlight the special effects for this film. In, in particular, the pyrotechnical effects. They were headed up by Mike Edmondson. He was considered the supervisor over all the effects. Um, Mike has been involved with special effects since 1978, and some of the films he worked on included The Cat from Outer Space, Tron, Cat's Eye, uh, Year of the Dragon, Short Circuit, I believe he also did the sequel as well, Short Circuit 2, uh, Inner Space, Deep Star 6, he did the 1992 The Addams Family, and same year he also did Batman Returns, uh, he worked on Demolition Man, Species, Independence Day, The Faculty, Sky High, Iron Man, Thor, The Avengers, and Rampage. Uh, Rampage being the film that starred Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock. The music score for Firestarter was done by Tangerine Dream. Now, interestingly enough, in the 80s, it was either Tangerine Dream or Vangelis that always seemed to get the scores. Vangelis, uh, very famously known for their Blade Runner score, Tangerine Dream, hand was famous for a lot of other scores their lineup for the band though changed quite frequently at the time of this film it consisted of the trio edgar froze who is the band's creator basically christopher frank and johannes schmoling uh not at this time obviously but other names that have been attached to tangerine dream include michael honig and paul hasslinger hasslinger did uh 
the score for the original Underworld film, and I think he even did one of the Resident Evil films, if I remember correctly. Tangerine Dream have also uh, provided scores and soundtracks for films like Thief, Risky Business, The Keep, Flashpoint, Vision Quest, uh, Red Heat, uh, Legend. Oh, God, Legend, classic flick. Uh, They also did Near Dark, which is another classic, and Three O'Clock High, which is sort of a comedy about um, uh, a kid who bumps into a bully and then he spends the whole day like preparing himself because he thinks he's going to get his ass kicked by the bully and whatnot. It started uh, Casey Zamasco, if I remember correctly. I haven't seen the movie in years, <laughs> but I do remember it very vaguely. Uh, starring cast. Okay, so let's start with David Keith. Not Keith David, but David Keith um, as Andy McGee or Andrew McGee. McGee. Um, he starred in other films like Major League Two, Ernest Goes to School, and Behind Enemy Lines. He's pretty good in this film. I'm not going to lie. He plays uh, Drew Barrymore's father, basically. Drew Barrymore, obviously, in this flick, she's basically the star. Uh, she is Charlie McGee. Um, so she's been in films, obviously, like E.T., Cat's Eye, Babes in Toyland with Keanu Reeves, uh, she had a small role in Waxwork 2. She was in Batman Forever, uh, Scream, a slew of fucking rom-coms that I was not mentioning, and a few bad Adam Sandler films as well, like Fifty First Dates. <laughs> um, she was in Poison Ivy, Wayne's World 2, uh, Titan AE, Charlie's Angels, obviously, Donnie Darko, and most recently had an uncredited cameo in the latest Scream movie. Uh, she's the voice of the principal. Uh, she was also in the Netflix series Santa Clarita Diet. I thought that I should mention that because I talked about Netflix earlier and whatnot. Interestingly enough, the role of Charlie was actually, uh, there was like a three-way battle kind of going on with this uh, role as to who would get it. It was between Jennifer Connelly, Heather O'Rourke, and um, obviously Drew Barrymore, who won the role out in the end. Um Drew Barrymore and Heather O'Rourke, if I remember correctly, were also um, sort of battling for the role of Carol Ann in the Poltergeist films as well. So it's kind of interesting that those two, in their own sort of way, kind of, you know, battled it out for roles and whatnot. Uh, Moving on to Freddie Jones as Dr. Joseph Wanless. I think I'm saying is the last name right? Wanless, Wannels, something like that. Uh, He was in films like Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, Satanic Rites of Dracula, Son of Dracula, Firefox, Krull, uh, the original Dune from 1984, and he was in The NeverEnding Story Part 3. Moving on to Heather Locklear. Yes, Heather was in this. This is her first feature role, actually. Um, She plays Vicky McGee. She was also a regular on the TV series T.J. Hooker in the 80s. She was in The Return of Swamp Thing. And she was a regular on Melrose Place, amongst many other roles, obviously. We all love Heather. Uh, she's very cute in this movie, although underused in my opinion. Um, let's move on to Martin Sheen. Yes, Martin Sheen is in this film. This is an all-star cast in this movie, by the way. I must say that. But Martin Sheen is Captain Hollister. He was in movies like The Dead Zone. He's great in The Dead Zone. He was in Apocalypse Now. And I did talk about him earlier when I uh, talked about the movie Spawn. So uh, Martin has uh, done some movies I like, that's for sure. 
George C. Scott as John Rainbird. Um, yeah, I I have some things to talk about George when I get to him. It was also in movies like The Changeling. He was uh, in Patton and Exorcist Three. Obviously, it's a uh, Exorcist Three was a real step up after The Exorcist Two. Basically, kind of sucked. <laughs> uh, I, I say kind of because I'm trying to be nice. Art Carney as Irv Manders uh, did a lot of TV work. He uh, was also, I should say, he uh, had a role on the 66 Batman series. He played the uh, villain, the Archer. And he was also on the Star Wars holiday special. Yeah. I wasn't letting that go unannounced. Uh, he was also in The Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, the Night They Saved Christmas, he played Santa Claus. I did talk about that back when I was talking about different Santa Clauses that I had liked in certain movies. I believe during the Deadly Games sound, um, episode, if I remember correctly. And he was also in Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm almost done, kids. I promise. Uh, Louise Fletcher as Norma Manders. She has a small role in this, but she's there. Uh, she was a Oscar winner in the movie uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She was also in that uh, Exorcist 2 movie that I was just talking about. And she was in Strange Invaders. She was in Cruel Intentions and Virtuosity, which is a film with Denzel Washington. And finally, Moses Gunn as Dr. Pinchot. Uh, he was in movies like Shaft, uh, Rollerball, uh, the one from 1975. Uh, he was in uh, The Ninth Configuration, The Neverending Story, and Heartbreak Ridge. Firestarter has a runtime of an hour and 54 minutes. It's rated R for violence, frightening scenes, and language. The budget for the film was $15 million and the gross was bet somewhere between 17 to $19 million. I saw a few different figures, so I just figured I'd round it off. The synopsis for this film. As youths, Andy McGee and his future wife, Vicky, participated in secret experiments, allowing themselves to be subjected to mysterious medical tests. Years later, the couple's daughter, Charlie begins to exhibit the ability of setting fires solely with her mind. This volatile talent makes the youngster extremely dangerous, and soon she becomes the target for the enigmatic agency known as the SHOP. SHOP is basically like some like government underground entity that's like, you know, out to basically destroy Charlie because they're afraid that, you know, she could destroy the world and be a you know a security threat for the united states until they start to realize that they might want to weaponize her at the same time and then doctor kind of you know dr wanless is sort of like hey hold on a second no you're not fucking doing that and he gets himself killed because of it anyways on to this segment of the show and i decided to call this segment lot six trust us you will all be just fine uh, because um, there's some interesting themes to this film, uh, some of which I will highlight later on in the review. But first off, I do want to point out this film, I believe I already said it, but I'm going to say it again, is hated by critics, loved by fans. Um, it was one of several Stephen King-based stories turned to films that were all released within an eight-year period 
Uh, starting in 1976 and up to 1984, titles of the other films were Carrie, which is the one that started this whole thing. Um, Carrie was the first Stephen King film, followed up by the miniseries Salem's Lot. Then there was Cujo, The Shining. Actually, I think The Shining came out before Cujo, but whatever. I wrote it in this order. Uh, Christine, Children of the Corn, and The Dead Zone. Uh, but like I said, it all started with Carrie, which is another film about a girl with some like you know mental psychic powers. Um, oh, and there was also the anthology uh, film Creep Show, where Stephen King worked with George A. Romero. That was released in 1982. Uh, some critics were quick to point out that early in the run of films, you know, based on Stephen King's novels. Uh, most of them were about individuals with mental or psychic abilities. And you figure, you look at Carrie, you look at well, the character of Carrie White, obviously. You had The Shining with uh, Jack O'Halloran and Danny Torrance. Uh, the Dead Zone with uh, Christopher Watkins' character. Why I can't think of it at this moment, I don't fucking know. And then Firestarter with Charlie McGee and Andy McGee, obviously. You know, they have their mental abilities as well. By the time Firestarter was released, critics complained that this movie was boring and dull because we've seen all this before. Okay, who the hell cares? Because, see, here's my thing. Currently, at this very moment, you know, Stephen King's uh, accredited to 341 different writing credits, you know, in terms of films and TV series and film shorts and whatnot and anthologies and everything. 341 credits pop up on his IMDb IMDb b page god i didn't think i'd struggle saying that but apparently i did uh so the thing is is i think stephen king knows what he was doing and okay so yeah the you know in the first eight years a lot of these films were about these people that had these mental or psychic abilities but that didn't mean that was the only thing he knew how to write it was just that's what they started with for me personally i'm still waiting on from a buick eight i really want to see this i think it's going to be great it is considered a, you know, it's in production at the moment, and we really don't have any time frames for it, but I'm waiting for that announcement. I want to see from a Buick 8. But let's really get into this, okay? Let's get into the, the, the reason fans really love this Firestarter flick. And I broke it down like this. I broke it down into basically five categories. And the five categories are this. One, Drew Barrymore. Two, the special effects. Three, the score. Four, Martin Sheen. And number five, let's save the best for last, without a doubt, George C. Scott. So let's look at number one, for example. Drew Barrymore, hot off her role in E.T., she wins the vote for this fresh new role in Firestarter. Supposedly, she kind of called it, according to her anyways. She kind of saw that she would get this role. Story has it that her mother saw the book in a store. And there's uh, on the book, the girl, like the image of the girl on the cover reminded, you know, Drew's mother of Drew. And so Drew seeing the book, asked her mom if she could buy the book. Keep in mind, at six years old, I might add, but wanted to get the book. And her mom said, yeah, sure, no problem. She gets the book. Drew reads the book. And after she read it, she <laughs> went running into a room and told her mom that she was the fire starter and her name was Charlie McGee. Now, this was all before she had even auditioned for the role, and then apparently when the role came up, she auditioned for it, she got it, and according to Drew, she may have unintentionally seen her future. <laughs> Take that with a great assault, but I mean, hey, it is what it is, right? That being said, her performance is really good in the movie. She's, I, 
you know, she's somewhat believable. Now, interestingly enough, this is something that kind of made me funny. Uh, you know, when looking into the behind the scenes of this film and whatnot, I found out that the scene where Andy is dying, you know, he's just been shot. He's not going to make it. Charlie is supposed to be crying because she realizes she won't have her father anymore. I guess when they were trying to film that, Drew was having a very hard time producing actual real tears. So at one point when the camera was off, she asked David Keith, before we start filming, could you give me a spanking so I'll actually really cry? And he obliged. He said, okay, fine. So right before the camera started, he kind of gave her a, you know, a little bit of a hit and she was able to produce real tears because she was really crying. And I'm laughing thinking in 2022, this would never stand. Can you imagine if this came out? I mean, the lawsuits, the tweets, the social media posts. I mean, fucking TMZ would be in their gossip heaven. And then there's this whole cancel culture shit. David Keith would never work again. <laughs> like, You know, it would destroy an actor in a Thanos snap. But it was interesting that, you know, method actors and whatnot, they tend to get into their role. And that's exactly what Drew Barrymore did. She was like, all right, I need to cry I can't cry, so how about you hit me? <laughs> It'll make me cry. And it worked. So, you know, it, the things that we don't realize that actors will do to put off a, a really good performance. Now, moving on to the second point, the special effects. All practical, including the fireballs. There's the fireballs in the final scenes and whatnot. All of that was done with wires and pyrotechnics that, you know, they were used through the filming sessions of those points. Uh, Mark Lester actually went on record as saying that Firestarter was probably his most stressful film he had ever directed, primarily because of the difficult levels of the effects. Um, there's no CGI back in 1983 when they were filming this, and Mark Edmondson and his team had to do a, a bang-on job with it, and they did. They did a really good job with the, the special effects. Again, considering it was 1983-84, no CGI used in the film, they did a great job with it. Now, some of Drew's scenes um, did have to be filmed on a soundstage. Here's an interesting thing to think about, because we don't think about it at the time, but the only reason why her, her scenes had to be filmed on a soundstage was because she couldn't work through the night. Remember, a child needs their sleep. <laughs> like, So it kind of makes sense. Like Some of you know, Drew Barrymore scenes weren't actually on set, but it is what it is. Aside from the little tricks here and there, this was an all practical film, wires and stunts, stunt people and prosthetics and contact lenses, which caused, you know, George C. Scott to end up, you know, when he's wearing the patch in the film, the reason why he's wearing that patch is because he had an eye infection because that one eye that he's supposed to look like he's blind in or whatever it was a contact lens that actually gave him a bit of an eye infection. So that's why he's wearing the patch for more or less the second half of the film. On to the third point, the score. So Tangerine Dream belt out yet another awesome score. But the funny thing to this, they never saw the movie beforehand. What the group basically did, they recorded just a bunch of musical cues and you know score music and whatnot, and they handed it all to Mark Lester, and they said, here, this is what we're offering you. Take what you want, use what you want, and discard the rest. And that's basically what he did. It's interesting that even though the band had not seen the film, it's still one of the standout characteristics of the film. Going back to 1984, yeah, it was released on vinyl. It was released on cassette. Um, it's never been reissued since that time. 
Me personally, I'm sitting here thinking, well, with this big boom of reissues and soundtrack, you know, first time releases and all this shit that's going on right now, Waxwork Records, Terror Vision, Mondo, Barry Sarabond, they're all coming out with all these amazing soundtracks right now. Um, does someone want to pick up the rights to that 1984 score? Because I would love to own it. Sure, I can find a 1984 pressing online and relatively at a decent price, but it would be kind of cool to see it get its, you know, uh, reissue. And, you know, for those that can't find the original soundtrack and whatnot, not to mention that original soundtrack, you're going to be buying a used copy. It's not it's not in circulation anymore. So. It's also sad that it's not online. Uh, I believe YouTube, you can find the score and whatnot. But other than that, like it's not on Spotify or any of those music streaming services. So is what it is. Moving on to point four. Now, I brought up Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen actually replaced Burt Lancaster on this film uh, very late in the stages. Burt Lancaster was supposed to play the role of, um, of the captain and whatnot. Martin Sheen had to replace him because Burt Lancaster was having heart issues. Um, so sad that Bert was pulled off the, the project, but at the same time, it was a blessing in disguise for Martin. And though many feel he's underused in the film, um, when Martin's on the screen, he's, he definitely stands out. Um, doesn't chew up the scenery too badly, but he's just, he's really solid and he works very well off of George C. Scott. And not to mention he has he has a real knack for playing those crooked government agents or politicians and whatnot. He just plays those roles very well. But I mentioned George C. Scott, which brings me to point number five. Mr. George C. Scott himself is a goddamn blessing to this film. His double role as Rainbird or, you know, like the assassin Rainbird or when Charlie knows him, she knows him as like John the Orderly or John the Maintenance Guy or whatnot. But when he's on there, he's chewing up the scenery every time he's on the screen, and we love him for it. He is fucking amazing. And everyone around him, when he's on the screen, whether it's with Martin Sheen, whether it's with Drew Barrymore or whatever, he he brings their level of acting up a notch. And it's just is so fucking wonderful. Dino De Laurentiis actually had to go to Universal uh, Studios and request an additional million dollars just so that he could specifically cast George C. Scott in the role of Rainbird. And they agreed. They they were like, here's the money, go get him. And that is awesome because sometimes studios tend to interfere or they'll say, hey, we gave you the money, you work with what you got. They totally agreed with him wholeheartedly on it. And because of that, we get George C. Scott in an amazing role. And while I do give highlight to the three actors being Drew Barrymore, Martin Sheen and George C. Scott, that is not to say that the others don't shine as well. Like David Keith, Art Carney and Louise Fletcher, they all do wonderful jobs with their roles. Um, And Heather Locklear, here's my thing with Heather. It's not that she's bad in this. She's far from being bad. Like she, she's very solid. It's just, she's very underused and I get it based on the story and the way they told it in this, in this film. She really doesn't get much, you know, time on the screen to shine, but it would have been nice to see a little bit more of that, especially her death, um, because it's kind of like one of those things where we hear about that she died, but we never actually saw it. Maybe that was due to time restraints or budget or whatever. Who really knows? But I mean, all the actors really, when you think about it, when it comes to Firestarter, it's an A-list cast and they all do an amazing job. 
But I did mention that the critics really do not like this film. And I mean, like, Roger, Roger Ebert called the film boring. He gave it two out of four stars. Uh, he cla- Here's the thing. He claimed that Drew Barrymore was never believable and that she was just a plot gimmick. Um, I disagree. Uh, you think about it. She Eight years old when this movie was released, um, it was filming it basically when she was seven years old. A seven-year-old actress doing the performance that she gives is not bad at all. She does a great job. But it's interesting that one of the critics that does not like this film, Stephen King himself. He is not necessarily a fan of this movie. Um, kind of like The Shining. He, send, he, he tends to have a thing against The Shining. Well, he's made that very well known. And apparently he felt somewhat similar to Firestarter. Uh, and he and Mark Lester feuded over it for you know a bit in time. Uh, Stephen King basically called the film flavorless. Uh, he felt that it just didn't have the pop that he wanted it to have. But later in time, he also did say that he more blamed the producers for that than he did Mark Lester. And as for Lester, Lester was shocked that King hated the movie. Like when he found out, he was kind of surprised because he said Stephen King was the one giving him input during the filming of the movie and came up with ideas and he also seemed to approve of everything that Mark was doing with the film. Um, but the thing is, is that with Mark Lester, he, he's, he went on record as saying, look, he's a huge fan of Stephen King's work, and he really didn't want to argue with him over the film. So, I mean, he, he, he may have seemed like he backed down a bit, but he just he had too much respect for Stephen King, and he didn't want to further the argument anymore. So if Stephen King doesn't like the movie, Mark Lester doesn't necessarily take it personally either. The critics, though, some of them do give the movie some love, uh, usually saying things like it's worth giving it a watch or the cast is worth watching it for, which I kind of chuckle about that because it's things that I sometimes even have habit of saying. Um, I'd even say that about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, if you really want to, give it a shot and just keep your expectations low. Um, <laughs> but the general audiences, you know, the, the, the people that, went and saw this movie in the theaters and whatnot. They're the ones that seem to give the movie like a lot of love. Uh, even when you look at the comparisons on Rotten Tomatoes, the critic score is at 37% where the audience score is at 53%. And on IMDb, the, the film holds a rating of 6.1 out of 10 with six and seven being the two highest ratings. As for the podcast zero rating, let me up. Let me be upfront about this, okay? This is just my opinion, and some of this is based purely in nostalgia, um, especially when it comes to the score done by Tangerine Dream. This is a very a nostalgic thing for me, but I love this movie. I really do, and for a movie that's an hour and 54 minutes, it does not feel like an hour and 54 minutes. Uh, as a matter of fact, just last night I watched it before, you know, you know preparing for the podcast and whatnot, and I did not feel that it was that long of a film. And knowing that, you know, knowing the time length, I'm thinking, okay, it's just under two hours. Will I be able to stay awake? Will I stay engaged and whatnot? And the next thing you know, the movie's done. It's it, For a movie that long, it's still quite quick-paced. Um, it's not my favorite Stephen King movie, uh, obviously. I mean, everyone knows my favorite movie is Pet Cemetery, But this is a pleasure nonetheless, though. It's one that I do own on VHS and DVD. Um, this is, for me, Firestarter is not so much a movie that's about Drew Barrymore. For me, it's George C. Scott. This is my this is my, my Scott movie when it comes to Stephen King movies. Um, Martin Sheen is my guy in The Dead Zone. I fucking love him in The Dead Zone. As a matter of fact, I think I like him just a little bit more than Christopher Walken. 
And that's saying something because Christopher Walken is a fucking gem in that movie. But Martin Sheen is just, he's fucking brilliant in that. But the thing is, is even though I like him in this, I like George C. Scott just a little bit more. He takes the cake in this one, man. Um, and as I've said, I love the score. It's absolutely a gem. That is, it's my nostalgic thing, right? Like, and even if the band didn't see the movie before recording it, for some reason, the score just still works. Like, it's almost as if they had like some form of premonition as to what kind of music would work for it and whatnot. And then there's the special effects. They're decent. I mean, some of those like fireballs and stuff like that look really fucking cool. And that's for a movie that's from 1984. The actors are solid. Here's the thing I was... This is why I called this segment Lot 6. <laughs> because I was watching this last night and I couldn't help but chuckle at the, you know, the hints of horror that are embedded in the story. Um, we have a story that starts off with this whole experimental vaccine that kills 8 out of 10 trial participants before we even get to our two lovebirds getting married and having a kid, all of which happens off screen, I get that. But the whole trust us, you'll just be fine, the whole... We're testing out this vaccine that, you know, could potentially, well, we don't know what it'll potentially do, but we want you to trust us. We want you to know that you'll be just fine taking it. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is really fitting considering our times, uh, you know, because as much as I know, there's this whole thing in the media about pro-vax versus anti-vax and all this other shit. I think something that sort of gets brushed under the rug a lot of the times is that some people just have anxieties over vaccines. And when with a movie like this being in existence, not to mention Stephen King's book, uh, sometimes that's not hard to understand. Like, you know, I, I'm watching it last night and I'm going, that's interesting. I mean, it's totally not about that. That's just more or less the catalyst that starts the, the film off. But it was like, wow, that that kind of dated well <laughs> or not. <laughs> but anyways, in terms of the podcast zero rating, it's seven fireballs out of 10. I, I, I tend to stand a little bit higher on the marking of this. Again, like I said, some of that is out of pure nostalgia, but at the same time, I do enjoy this film. Do I think we need a remake? I'm totally open for it. You know, and I've said this before on the podcast, certain movies are actually really good when they're remade 20 and 30 years later. This one, 1984, we're what, you know, two years away from it having its 40th anniversary. This is a good time to remake it. And who knows, like, like I said, with what I caught in the first, you know, 10 minutes of the movie going, hmm, that's interesting. Who's to say that's not part of what they're going to hit on, especially considering the times and whatnot. So, hey, who knows? I, I'm completely open to this remake, and I'm totally looking forward to it. But I will say that the original will always have a place in my heart. And on that note, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for tuning in this week. Um, this was a fun one to revisit. It was a fun one to do some research. Um, lots of behind-the-scenes stuff that was really cool to to learn about and whatnot the story overall i mean it's it's a, it's a straightforward story right experiment gone wrong these people have this child and child has these abilities and now the government wants either to destroy her or to you know use her for their own means and whatnot it's a very believable story that even in these times we could believe you know <laughs> like um whether or not you consider that to be a conspiracy theory or fact, that is totally up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but, it, you know, it just is, 
It's somewhat of a relevant story. It's kind of timeless. I mean, let's face it, none of us really trust our governments. And it would be easy to believe that if they tapped into this, like, you know, mental ability type of power where that could be weaponized, would they weaponize it? More more, li- more than likely, I would have to say yes. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, it, it was a it was a real pleasure to to jump back to this one. I'm kind of glad we're getting that remake because it brought it back to the forefront of my mind, and I was like, I definitely want to do this movie. So it was a pleasure, and I I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You know, make sure to like and subscribe. No, I'm kidding. I totally you don't have to. <laughs> I'm not that guy. Um, I mean, you guys know where to find the podcast, obviously. You know, most major podcast streaming apps have it now, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google. Um, you can find it at redcircle.com, obviously, Podbean, uh, Podcast Addict, Castbox. There's a whole bunch of them. It, it, it can be found there on social media, uh, as my, my favorite social media. But, anyways, uh, facebook.com slash what lurks behind podcast zero. On Instagram at What Lurks Behind Podcast Zero and on Twitter at WLB Podcast Zero. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. This was a, a lot of fun to record, even though I'm I, I'm going to tell you something. One of those behind the scenes things that you don't see, but my hand is really sore because I'm trying not to make very much noise holding this microphone, and my hand is very sore at the moment. But hey, it is what it is. The show must go on. As for the next episode, I'm debating between two films, so this will be a surprise. That's all I'm going to say because I'm toying with two ideas. Also, I will say that next week there will not be an episode simply due to the fact that my work schedule is going to make this a little bit harder on me. So (laughs) uh, my schedule has changed for one week. So because of that... I've chosen to hold off on another episode for next week, but I made sure to get this week's episode in. So with that being said, I know there's two assholes that always love to end off my show for me, and I'm just going to let them go ahead and do it now. You need to shut the fuck up. Hey, lick my plate, you dog dick. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all... (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.